stories in the Bible. Have you ever found yourself deep in the rabbit hole with questions that no one seemed to have the answers to? Join us the first Monday of every month at 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Endeavor Freedom YouTube channel for our Ask Me Anything series with author and researcher Gary Wayne as he sheds light on the mysteries which have us all searching together. Welcome everyone to another Ask Me Anything with author and researcher Gary Wayne. I'm your host, Justin James Garcia with Sacred Word Publishing and InGen and Endeavor Freedom. And we're just really happy to have you all joining tonight. Uh, Gary, are you with us? Excellent. Well, we are starting another countdown to our conference, so we have four months until we uh, prayerfully everything goes better than it is now and we can meet and uh, celebrate together and talk about some awesome discussion uh, topics. And I know actually tonight we have some really great, great questions, so I'm looking forward to it. Are you ready? Excellent. All right, so we'll just start with a quick prayer and... I'll say a prayer for you. Father Yahuwah, we humble ourselves before you. We thank you so much for life. Thank you for uh, the mercy that you have on us and this world every day and giving us another opportunity to make amends and to repent and to seek you. We just ask that you would be with us and let us sow faithful seeds and those around us of love and of truth. We ask that you would be with Gary tonight as he answers the questions that people have submitted and questions from the live chat, please give him wisdom to answer correctly and with truth, and let all we do uh, bring glory to you, Father. We thank you for this time to fellowship, and most especially, we thank you for you and for who you are and for coming into this world, living a perfect life and dying on the cross for us and defeating death. Uh, we thank you for the promise that we have that we also can defeat death through you. We, we praise you and we we just are so humbled by your love and uh, the mercy that you have upon us. We thank you so much. In the name of the Messiah, Yahusha, amen. Amen. All right, so I will post the questions up here on the screen. All right, let's get started. So the first question comes from MJM. What is the general power structure of the enemy is this power structure broken down into structures, branches, similar to a corporation? For example, a religious branch utilizing a pantheon of gods as an administrative legislative branch representing the top officials in government and a science branch, which I believe may be represented by organizations like the Royal Society, etc.? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, and it's a, it's a big question because it, because it covers a lot of ground. So let me see whether or not I can describe it in a way that starts to make some sense for some people. Um, because it's really important to understand what, how the enemy is structured. And that allows us to at least sort of anticipate from what directions we can expect deceptions or attacks or, or, or whatever. And so it's, it's important concept to understand. And that I'm not going to get down to the earthly 
aspect as it manifests into the human uh, organizational structure first. I want to backpedal into uh, the invisible side of the enemy first and then show how that comes out of the organizational structure of the fallen angels. And so the first thing that I would point towards as we talk about this organizational structure is that everything that the fallen angels tend to do tends to be a counterfeit. So in this case, you would have a counterfeit organizational structure of what God has for the angelic structure in heaven. And typically you get, you know, sort of three different groups of these angels as it comes in the standard sort of dogma as to the hierarchy of the angels. But it's not quite that simple in terms of my research. It's similar, but it's got some nuances to it. So... Uh, when we look at the organizational structure in heaven, what you have, first of all, is what is surrounding God. And it's more than just the three, which is the standard, which is the thrones that people will use out of the New Testament. It was actually would be below the thrones, which would be the Ophanium, as Enoch calls it, and you know the, the beings within, within the throne and the wheels in, in Ezekiel. And you also have the cherubim who look very very similar to what the thrones faces would look like except that the thrones actually have a face of a cherub in there and in the cherub's case they don't have a face of themselves <laughs> they've got a face of a lion that's different but the cherub are the ones who cover the throne and fan the throne and then you have the seraphim angels who are the ministers who work within the fiery stones before the altar and are like ministers, so the head priests, and that's very, very important to understand. And also, as you tie in why Satan may have had nine jewels as opposed to the 12 of the Levites, I believe he was actually a high minister as well, but that's a different rabbit trail. But just to sort of get you to understand that the seraphims have a unique function that includes the religion and a few other things I'll touch on in a few minutes. And we know they actually forgive some sins because in Isaiah 6, they take one of those hot stones and put it to the lips of Isaiah to take away his sin. And then you have the fourth group, not most not commonly talked about, which is the archangels. And that's a very, very important to understand one of the pillars that comes down as to how it's manifested on the, on, on the earth. And so beneath these, you will have uh, different levels of angels, and I won't go through them all because we're, we're trying to get this back down to how it sort of happens on the earth, but you get different names for these angels that are below. I mean, you get the angels, uh, which are, you know, a common sort of messenger type of angel, but you also have things like the powers or the excusia as it comes out in English, uh, excusia being the Greek and powers in English, or kriatos, which are the dominions um, and part of the government structure and the thrones, which we talked about. And also you have the mighty ones. And so you've got all of these different types of angels that are part of this organizational structure in terms of how they come down from those top, we'll say four instead of the standard three. So you can imagine just like Satan wants to have a throne like God, he's going to have a similar type of setup around his throne. 
and that you'll have a similar sort of hierarchy as that comes down into the lower angels. And so now if we can imagine that on Earth, they're going to set up with humans and you know, human hybrids or the descendants of angels and, and uh, Dephilim and Rephaim and the royal bloodlines, you're going to have a system that's set up like this. And you're going to have three different pillars as that comes down. So imagine a pillar that is the religious pillar and imagine a pillar that is the government pillar and then the third one, imagine one that is a military pillar. And within that reign of government, you have, starting with the government reign, you have the kings and the queens. So they're the rulers of dynasties, rulers of nations. So to backpedal just a step from that, now factor in Psalms 82 with the Council of the Gods, and Deuteronomy 32, with the number of nations both before the flood in the time of Adam and after the flood with the 70 nations that come out of Noah's descendants, which is the same number of the 70 sons of Jacob born in Egypt, you will have seven original nations. Now, these nations will expand over time, and these nations will have different gods before the flood and after the flood because many of the angels before the flood and maybe ones that participated in a second incursion or other violations after the flood were also put into the abyss. So those angels would have to be replaced, and they would all be fed through this hierarchy of angels that we think at least 33% of them rebelled, which would be probably a minimum of 33 million based on 10,000 times 10,000 for the number of angels talked about in Revelations and Daniel. So you have this these nations that have been expanding that will be answerable to the parent sets of nations that came out of the original nations. So they're like different families and bloodlines as they get into these different nations. And then below those nations, you have provinces and states and then counties. And again, imagine this all being worked down with the elite of the descendants of and the, and the cousins and the sisters and all throughout history of the elite nobility that is the greater family of the kingships that were Rephaim after the flood. So now if we can imagine that, imagine that you have with with that infrastructure that goes down into, you know, even into the cities with the mayors and into the counties and things like that, you'll have things like, you know, Masonic lodges and things that are going to be set up in each of those areas. And they're working with that government infrastructure. And if there isn't a king and a queen, let's say you have a democracy, it's the bloodlines behind the scenes that are still working the government through managing the people that we see running the, the, the government, the elected, elected officials, by controlling them and using them, them as puppets. I'm going to come back to that in a second. So the religious aspect is going to have uh, you know, the typical setup that we might have that we see with the Roman Catholic Church. You have this complete hierarchy of arch archbishops and archdioceses and different levels as you go throughout the 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 uh, organizational structure in the Roman Church, which wasn't the, the way it originally was. It was a much more flatter 
organizational, decentralized organizational system that came out of Israel and what we see with the Sanhedrin and then with the uh, early Christian church where power wasn't all centralized. They had a home church, they had a home temple, but they didn't have all of this uh, organizational structure where they had to follow the orders uh, of what was coming from the head temple. They were decentralized, they ran themselves, and they were sort of bound by the scripture in terms of how they were going to utilize that um, within the churches, not bound by a central authority. And what's interesting when we talk about that is that you have education that is, is coming out of uh, the religious society that would teach it. So in the modern world, we have the Jesuits who have control over education within the Catholic Church, and then you have universities that go back to the organization of the Royal Society in 1660 to 1662 that was formed by Gnostics and Freemasons. And what's important to understand about all of this is that the education system is sort of taught by the adepts and the priests, but the people going through that education system come out of the royal bloodlines and the elite aspect of it. And those are the ones who are still getting that education in those elite universities and things like that. And they all pay homage outside the church to the royal society even to this day. And I'll link back in the secret societies into that structure in, in just a second. I, I, you know, I gave one example in terms of how the Mason lodges are, are set up, but I'll tie that a little bit more neatly. But understand that the same thing happens within the Catholic Church with the Jesuits. And so they control all of the teachers, they control all, all of the things that are taught, and the Jesuits interpret the Bible through the seven sacred sciences, which are the same thing or the seven liberal arts that are taught in universities and things today. And that's the theology behind the education system. And so when they talk about philosophy, that's a combination of forming together the first three sciences like rhetoric and um, dialectics and it forms what they call philosophy, which is, you know, their term for theology, and it guides how the seven sciences are going to be practiced. It's the glue. It's the direction that it gives. And we see this re reflected in how universities are set up. They have these secret societies. They have these, uh, these houses. They have this uh, system that is very, very similar to how they would have within the organizational structure of the royal bloodlines. And you've got buildings that are very Greek um, and Roman in nature in terms of architecture with a little bit of Egyptian that's put in. And they all very much look like the pantheons and the, the various uh, you know, ancient buildings that even the government buildings will reflect. So these are buildings designed to honor the pantheon of the gods. And so when we talked about the setup being sort of similar, you have degrees that you're going through in education. You go from grade one 
through to grade 12, and then you go into different degree levels in university, and you're going to receive a master's degree, as in a master, a grandmaster of a Masonic society. And adepts within the secret societies have degrees, starting at the third degree of the York Rite, which is the equivalent to the 33rd degree of, of, of the Scottish Rite. And so it's being funneled by the elite for the most part, a little bit different in Western democracy to a certain degree, but still, whether or not you're talking about Harvard or Yale or the Ivory, um, Ivy League universities, they're basically dominated by the bloodlines to be educated, and then they're let in a certain percentage in the age of, of political correctness. And so the secret societies they in the past have been the nobility and the elite. And again, for the most part, still are because you have to be invited to join them. And they report up the ladder, Freemasons being the lowest and then up to the Illuminati as they go up the middle of the trunk as opposed to the branches coming in. And you're going to get to the Rosicrucians, which at the top 50% level are purebloods. And then you get into the royal orders, whether or not it's the Seraphim order, um, and the many, I won't go into all the details of the many orders uh, that there are, but there's just an incredible amount of, of, of royal bloodline orders where the bloodlines use that and feed down into the lower levels in terms of the, uh, of, of the secret societies. But above the Rosicrucians are all purebloods. And so when we look at the beginnings of the secret societies, they spin off of the seven liberal arts and sciences in the antediluvian epoch that Enoch develops, son of Cain, that's going to merge with the knowledge from the fallen angels in about the generation of Jared and Noah. When the giants are created, you're going to create this organizational structure that's going to be with us uh, right from then on, because that organizational structure crosses the flood again when the Rephaim um, usurp all of the kingships and intermarry with, I think, the Nimrod bloodline. And you have the Babel religion, which is the Enochian religion, which crosses the flood, is spread to all the different dynasties. So you have the, the giants, you have the religion that's, that's all set up. And as, as we look at how that works together, you had the creation of the mystery schools, which become the secret societies, and the religion to house this knowledge that is sort of working together, but again, with that sort of bloodlines from the kings and the Raphaim and the Nephilim before the flood, and with this mystical sun-worshipping religion, that's the ba ba Babylon religion that we're going to see in the end time, and they're going to control the teaching of it. So when you see after the flood, for example, with Moses being taught, he is adopted into the Egyptian bloodline and then educated at Heliopolis into the mysteries and taught all of the sciences. So you see where that sort of weds and comes together in terms of the education and the religion that is set up to develop these sciences. And this is what comes together when the Royal Society and the Freemasons set up the Royal Society, they become the last of the sorcerers and the first of the scientists, and they get control of education outside the church. And of course, the Jesuits were set up as the New Templars, which were the parent organization to the Rosicrucians and all the modern 
secret societies that we know today as the New Templars because it was the Templar dream to establish the new Babylon and the new world religion for the world government that they had imagined from within the Roman church. So all of that's working together. Now, the other aspect uh, that comes down is the military aspect. And that comes down from the archangels and uh, into the princip- and into the mighty ones and into the angels. And again, you will have angels probably in each one of these pillars as they come down. And they're going to be working with this world with different levels of angels at different levels of the government structure, the, the religious structure, and with the army structure as well. And so you have the army that is the basically the model that comes out of the archangel as the ones who do the fighting. And of course, you have that structure that's very, very similar. Again, you have you know the the chief commander, and then you have generals, and you have the officer level, and then you have the all of the uh, poor who are going to be like um, the foot soldiers, right? So if you're from the nobility, you're going to be on a chariot in the old days, or you're going to be um, riding a horse in the cavalry or a knight, but you're not going to be the foot soldier. Uh, that's for the mundane. That's for the that's for the humans. And so if you can imagine a chessboard in terms of how this sets up, you can start to see how that whole structure works and as it funnels out. So you have the king and the queen, which are, you know, representative of the goddess and God or the king and the queen as the Raphaim or the Nephilim on earth. You have the bishops as the teachers and the religious aspect. You've got the uh, out further outside uh, elite working within the army level with the uh with the, the chariots and the cavalry and the knights, that's where the knights come in. Then you have the castles, which are the, the strongholds or the mighties uh, and, the, and the fortresses that, that are established up. And then the pawns are the mundane, the ones that get used and thrown out for fodder in, in the front. So look at that from that organizational structure, but look at those three main pillars that come down. And then if you want to look at other organizational structures that might represent that, you can look at the same thing that goes on in, in terms of, let's say, the mafia, where they have the godfather and then they have the lieutenants and it's all a family-run thing. And godfather, I think, is not a term that was picked without coincidence because that goes back to the parents of the original Nephilim and the Raphaim, the godfathers who produced the Nephilim and the Raphaim. And I think that's the whole idea of this bloodline, just as you have the mafia set up in families. And again, you have that same organizational structure that comes out of China with the triads that's controlled by the Lee family all around the world. So just to give you sort of an example of how the earthly organizational structure is a model of the invisible structure that governs this world, understanding that Satan is still the prince of this world and the and the god of this world, and he has all representatives of angels within his his rebellion, which would take up similar positions that would model what was going on in heaven. So I know that was a long answer, but it was a big question, and hopefully I made some sense.
Definitely. We appreciate how you tied everything in together with such a great and thorough answer. Move on to the next question that comes from Man of Milford. I know what happened in Israel after the flood. However, I know nothing of that location prior to the flood. Can you describe what, if anything, of significance happened here from the time the angels fell through Adam and then through Noah? Yeah, good good question. So, um, and we don't get a lot of information out of the Bible in terms of the covenant land. Uh, but the covenant land is a little bit bigger than just the land that Israel occupied. So let's just sort of look at Eden first, where Adam and Eve were. And that's, you know, number 5729 in Hebrew. And it's thought to have been in Mesopotamia in the east. And you've got Euphrates and the Tigris and, you know, two other rivers that were part of the rivers that were, you know, flowing out of Eden. And in Genesis uh, 15, 18, we understand that the whole entire of the covenant land is from the Euphrates to the Nile River. And so it was larger than what Israel would have had. So when Adam and Eve get ostracized out of the Garden of Eden, one presumes they're settling in the east just as Eden was thought to mean in the eastward part, in Mesopotamia, in, in, in the um, uh, sort of fertile crescent area of the Sumerians. And when Cain is ostracized, he moves even further east into the land of Nod. So what's going on with the Sethites is probably a civilization that is within or living beside or dwelling amongst what we would know as the ancient Sumerians of the Antediluvian society and, you know, probably one of many societies. Now, if we focus over in the direction of Israel and the land of the covenant today, Mount Hermon is in sort of the northeast corner of the land that Israel was um, looking to occupy and in the land where King Og had his kingdom in Bashan, in the Mount Hermon region. So before the flood, you would have had giants created on Mount Hermon and they would have come down from Mount Hermon. And one would expect then that you would have had civilizations marking giants within the land of the covenant area. And in, indeed, I think we do. You have uh, the Ugarit, which I think is an antediluvian site as well as a post-diluvian site, where you had Nephilim living before and I think Raphaim afterwards, and I think they, they inherited that site. That's my speculation, but I think, there, I, I think when you look at some of the other evidence that we would have, that might make some more sense. And you, you also have um, Balbuck where you have these giant stone slabs that are just monstrous and these ancient buildings that were, you know, in the age of the giants that I think probably were built between that organizational structure that we talked about previously between the religion, the Raphaim, or I'm sorry, before the flood, the Nephilim kingships, and building monuments not only for themselves, but monuments to honor the pantheon of the gods. And I think... Balbac would be 
a significant city location for giants before the flood. And then you have these wheel sites that, you know, spot around various areas of the land of the covenant that go back to before the flood. And the most notorious one would be Gilgal, make sure I pronounce it right, Gilgal Raphaim, which means wheel of the giants. And the wheel of the giants is uh, on the uh, plateau of, oh geez, I'm trying to be, uh, the Golan Heights. And a very, very important strategic area for Israel today. And this area has these many little uh things that are in there that are, you know, basically connected to portals. And so, again, I think this was a very, very holy site. And Gilgal, meaning wheel, and of the giants. And this is an area that I think, um, you know, it's ancient. And it was a very much a holy site of polytheist society before the time of, of, of Israel as, as they expropriated the land of the covenant. So I think we've got some very significant examples of giants and their mark on the land before the flood in the land of the covenant. And I also think that they were living there and created there to defile the land of the covenant, both before and after the flood. So again, we don't get a lot of information um, about places in the land of the covenant before the flood, but Jericho would be another significant one. And Jericho, by secular chronology, you know, they think it might go back 10,000 years. And the ancient structure of it that survived into the post-Olivian world was the first, you know, major city that was taken down with a special ritual that I think has, you know, the ritual has connections to the antediluvian world where the giants lived and the ritual to march around the city and bring the walls down and sounding the trumpets was announcing that they were going to be taking this land of giants that was the home of giants before the flood and Jericho would have been one of those great cities um, that was before the flood. And we also get some references from Jerusalem as being a city of rebellion before the flood as well. And so again, I think that was another part of the antediluvian legacy. And this is all reasons why the Raphaim settled in the land of Canaan and waited for Israel to ambush them um, after the flood. So that's a little bit of history that I think that, that sheds on the land of the covenant where Israel um, had their territory that I think, you know, reflects back to the, the age before the flood. Thank you. I appreciate the thorough answer again. That was definitely interesting. I looked up uh, the Gilgal Rephaim when you spoke of it. That is a very interesting site. It's so weird how all over the world we see these ancient, you know, concentric circle yep. structures. Yep. Yep. It's, it's very interesting. But I'll move I on to the next question. Oh, before you, you like before to... you, before before you do, Justin, I have sure. a, a 
perfect document on Gilgal Raphaim for people if they want to get a hold of me. That'll walk you through the site and the history and the connections. And uh, uh, I think it's an interesting read. Just, I, just as I also have some documents on the organizational structure of of the fallen angels and angels in general and how that comes down to uh, the human level. People want to get a sort of step-by-step scriptural backing in terms of the things that I'm talking about. Speaking of getting in touch with you, uh, we forgot to mention where can people uh, buy your book, The Genesis 6 Conspiracy, and how can they get in touch with you? That's a very good question. Um, let me see whether I can answer that one in, in, in a little less detail. Uh, go to my website, the genesis6conspiracy.com. That's genesis6 with the number 6conspiracy.com. And on that website, there's an email. So if you want to ask me a question, send me an email. Or if you want one of these documents that I'm talking about, um, and, and name the subject area that you're talking about, I'll figure out which ones you want from there. And I'll send them to you. I also have a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters of my book on the website so you can get a good feel for it. If you wanted to buy the book, you can buy a signed copy from the website or you can link over to uh, the Amazon for the Kindle version for the digital or to Amazon for a printed copy or to Barnes & Noble. And you can also get it in most online bookstores or order it through a local bookstore They'll just have to bring it in from Bookmasters, who distributes the book if it's not on the shelf. Or you can get a hold of me through Facebook under Gary Wayne and or send me uh, a message on my timeline or, as I say, um, message me on Messenger or at Twitter at Gary Wayne 63 at Gary Wayne 63. Ask me a question or look whether or not I've got a document. I'll get, I will get back to you. Excellent. Thank you very much. Um, our next question is something that has definitely been getting more importance, I think, especially in these past couple of weeks after a video was put out about 50 reasons why uh, I think it was about why Paul is a false apostle, why we shouldn't listen to Paul. And, you know, it's, it's an interesting concept. So this question comes from a man of Milford. In Revelation 21, 14, there are 12 apostles written on 12 foundations of New Jerusalem. Why is Paul's name not on there? And if he was not an apostle, then what do you consider him to be? Along sure. related lines, some claim Paul is a heretic. Can you provide the reasoning behind this belief? Yeah, and uh, let's start with the heretic aspect and work back. And one of the things that they, that has to happen in the end time is they have to de-deify Jesus. And so groups that are Gnostic and polytheist, and I'd also throw the Essenic group in it on this as well, they look at Paul as a heretic. And that he, he is the one through his writings and his teachings who went rogue and raised Jesus to a deity status. So they need to absolutely destroy Paul in the end time, just as they're going to try and present evidence that Jesus was a mortal prophet and he didn't die on the cross. He was taken down beforehand. Those are the two areas that they're going to attack because as Paul said, if Jesus wasn't resurrected, we don't have uh, have a faith because that's what our faith stands on. So it can't stand on a lie. So they're going to hit both ends. They're going to hit the resurrection aspect and then they got to destroy the 
the, the apostle who they claim uh, raised Jesus to deity status. And I think that's wrong, because I think when you look at what's talked about in the first four Gospels, it's pretty clear. But also understand they're going to destroy the book of John at the same time, because it's got the book of John has things in there they can't deal with as well. So he is going to be the one that they're, that they're going to be really focusing on. Look at increased attacks on that. And, of course, Paul is a very, very important figure in Christianity as we understand it. And he did a lot of prophecies. And when we look at Paul's importance, you know, he and Peter are the two sort of key figures that are going to shape Christianity moving forward. And Paul, for most of us as, you know, you know the Gentiles being brought into to the New Covenant— and so he's a very, very important figure. So when we look at Revelation 21, it says 12 apostles are going to be written there. We're not told which 12. Um, and a lot of people will confuse apostle with disciple, and there's a bit of a nuance there. So, uh, But the number 12 suggests for many, that that would be the 12 disciples, and then one would presume Matthias or Matthias was, you know, the 12th one who replaced Judas, and those would be the names, and then Paul wouldn't have his name written on there. But I would also point to Ephesians uh, 2.20, where it says the foundations are built on prophets and apostles. So... We've got apostles, not disciples, but we have a number that is correlating to the number of the disciples. And then Ephesians talks about foundations along with prophets. So we don't get the names that are on the foundation stones um, in, 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 the, in the new, <clears throat> excuse me, in, in the new Jerusalem. But we shouldn't be too dogmatic that they're going to be the 12 names of the disciples. Um, and we also have other apostles who weren't disciples like Timothy, uh, for example, that, you know, did great work and, you know, we have part of their scripture in the canon. So one would, you know, wonder why maybe their names aren't on there, but Paul is really, really important. I would also say, so, and not to be too dogmatic, and not to dismiss Paul, because wherever Paul fits in, he's going to have an important role, even though he considered himself the most lowliest uh, of people who would, be, who would be saved. I would imagine Paul might be amongst the 24 elders that are part of the first fruits. And so... I would say Paul's going to have a position, but my biggest point would be is we don't know those names. And if Ephesians is correct, it's not just going to be, you know, disciples. Um, there could be apostles and it could also be prophets, and that would include people of the Old Testament. And again, this is a coming together of the New Testament and the Old Testament and of the bridegroom. And I, it would seem to me that the New Jerusalem would be a foundation that would have both. But that's just my opinion. But I go back to we don't know the names that are going to be written on there. And we should be careful with the terminology disciple versus apostle. 
All right, thank you very much for that answer. The next question comes from Iron Fist. Was early Israel under written and oral Torah, or oral Torah only created from the Pharisees? Well, I would say that they were under written and oral, but not from the Pharisees. And when you talk about Israel in the beginning, you know, certainly the Pharisees would be one group of the of the sects. You had the Pharisees and you have the Sadducees and the Essenes would be the third sort of aspect with the Essenes being the, the polytheist end. Um, but if you go back to the Exodus, and after Exodus 40.17 with the, the tabernacle being established, and that comes towards the end of the Exodus book that leads into the Leviticus book, that's when you get all of these other laws that are written down. And one presumes from how that flows, it's like within a month or two months after that, and one also presumes that they made a record of it so that they could, you know, <laughs> refer to it. And this is done before Israel leaves Sinai, because in Numbers, which follows Leviticus, we get told in Numbers 1, 1 and 10, 11, that they're leaving, you know, within about a year, uh, just after a year of, uh, of being at Sinai. So somewhere between Exodus 40, 17 and the tabernacle, and by the time that they leave, this is all put down, and that's the timing of Leviticus. So I think those those uh, laws were put down probably on scrolls, probably through the Levites, and before you had this segregation of Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes. Excellent. I appreciate the answer again. Uh, the next question also comes from Iron Fist. What does it mean to test spirits? It's a very good question because there are spirits out there. There are angelic spirits who are spirit beings, and there are also demon spirits. And so when we're being approached by spirits, or let's say you have somebody, let's say, is talking in a tongue, there's no translator there. That's probably a demon spirit. If a spirit is communicating with you, you need to be very, very careful and test that spirit so that you know that that's not a demon spirit. And so in 1 John 4, it, you, you get instructions to test the spirit so that you can trust who you're communicating with. And so you need to ask them whether, if they're from God or not, and also ask them to confess that Jesus came from God as the Word and was made flesh and went back to him. And if they don't confirm that Jesus came from God and became flesh, then that's going to be either an antichrist spirit or it's going to be a demon spirit or it's going to be a fallen angel spirit and you need to send them away. You need to rebuke them and send them away. And so that's how you test them. Um, some people might even say you need to, if you want to test them further, you can ask 
them their names. I would say do not go down that route because that's usually for casting out spirits. So I would say just test them in terms of the way John tells us to and then send them on their way. Excellent. Thank you for that answer. The next question comes from Darla. I looked up Lo Ruhama, Strong's H3819, the symbolic name of a son of Hosea, but it's a daughter, not a son. Is this a typo? Yeah, you know, the, the text doesn't say that. And so I think that's uh, um, not quite consistent with the, the text. So you've got like a lo ama and a lo ami. So you've got two names that are similar in, in, in Jose 1. The actual text will say you have, you know, in Jose um, 1 3, you have a son born first that is Jezreel, and then you have lo ho ama which is the daughter, and then you have another son that's Loami in, in, in 1.8. So I think there's a, a typo in terms of the, the Strong's um, uh, the Strong's interpretation of that. I'll have to check that. I didn't check uh, actually how Strong's um, uh, has translated that, but I'll, I'll certainly do that afterwards in terms of, of the name and see what it says. But I think the narrative is quite clear in terms of whether or not it's in the King James Version or another translation that there are three different people there. And the middle one, which is uh, Lo Rohama, um, is uh, a daughter. So, uh, yeah, but I'll, I will double check that at a Strong's. I, I have not checked that uh, and. Had no reason to go back and check that before that, but now that is, as I as I listen to that question, um, I would say Strong's would have to be an error on that as a typo, or at least in that copy of the Strong's being used. All right, thank you. Um, just reading through it, yeah, it, it seems in the text in Hosea one six it says she conceived again and bare a daughter, and God said unto him. Call her name Lo Ruhama, for I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. So it seems like it's actually um, in the Strong's definition, it says not to be pitied, the symbolic name of a son of Hosea. But then when you read in the lexicon, it says the symbolic name of a daughter of Hosea. So <laughs> yeah, definitely it seems these Strong's is... Is they've, there. they've got it. Yeah, they've got a mistake there, and yet, and generally they're very, very good. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's definitely a great resource. I encourage everyone to yep. check out the Strong's Concordance and don't study the Bible without it, because you know the Greek lexicon and the Strong's Concordance is a great blessing for us to be able to utilize during our studies. Uh, so, our next question comes from Pete, and this is a very straightforward question. Does Boris Johnson have any Masonic ties? It's a good question because, you know, he's a very important political figure these days who is bringing England out of the Brexit, uh, uh, through the Brexit, uh, out of the EEC. So he's going to have an impact in terms of the world stage and 
how things go forward in terms of intercountry relationships. I think it's going to be very important to North America in terms of what's going on there. So the question is, is does he have uh, Masonic ties? There's a lot of speculation that he does, um, not a whole lot of proof, but one would suggest that being at Oxford, that he's going to have strong secret society ties probably through the Rosicrucians and probably through the bloodlines. What we do know is, is he was part of the uh, Bullingdon Club, which is not one of your more notorious secret societies, but it's a society that David Cameron, the former prime minister of England, was also uh, a member of. And... They're actually kind of related to a certain degree, distantly, but they're, they're distant. They have a, a you know bloodline relationship there. You know, you have a lot of Rosicrucian societies set up on campus. Uh, the Inkling Society would be the most famous one that Lewis and uh, Tolkien were part of. And again, I have a great series on Luke, uh, on uh, Tolkien and Lewis, including their bloodlines. If if you want to get into that and how we know they were Rosicrucian, but that's another classic example of a Rosicrucian society, and uh, and of course in the organizational structure that's higher up than the Masonic organization, the Freemasonic one, as opposed to the ancient Masonic one. The ancient Masonic one is through the bloodlines, just as the Rosicrucians are, uh, the top half and above are of, of the bloodlines. So let's have a little bit closer look at uh, Ben Johnson and his bloodline sort of genealogy and he through his father's side actually descends you know from uh, George II and that is kind of a weak bloodline but it's still a bloodline and he's part of the elite and he did go to Oxford and also members of this Bullington club that we talked about you would have had kings like Edward VII and the Eighth were part of this back in the 1780s so this is an old prestigious sort of organizational structure, not organizational structure, the old prestigious society that has a very, very stellar bloodline relationship to people who are going to be part of this, of this society that's at Oxford. And his mother, um, her last name is Fawcett, first name Charlotte. Her family has a history of all being educated at Oxford. So you have this sort of, I think, outer perimeter area of bloodline and, and nobility that is being educated at Oxford, and he's part of a society that has produced the last two prime ministers. All of this suggests that his bloodlines has him in some bloodline orders that tie back into the Rosicrucians, but we don't, I don't have uh, hard evidence to sort of finish the connections of those dots, but in, in terms of my snooping around, that's what I learned. Oh, well, we appreciate your snooping around. Thank you very much. The next question comes from The Blood Saves. The rider on the white horse is given a crown and a bow, but no arrows, yet he conquers. Think about it. 
They have the world on lockdown without firing one shot. Could this be the white horse? No, not yet. Not yet. Uh, and I, but I do like the comments. And I'm going to start with the comments. And then I'll um, come back to say, no, not yet. And so when we look at the opening of the seals and the horses that come with it, there is war that's following afterwards. And there is famine and then there is pestilence. And also in Revelation 6, you get earthquakes and you also get stars falling. You get similar birth paying catastrophes happening in the seals that are going to happen beforehand. But when this world comes about, there may be wars and rumors of war and catastrophes, but when the world comes together to form the universal religion, which has false prophets coming out of these catastrophes, predicting other catastrophes that if everybody doesn't convert to this new world religion, we're going to be destroyed from the face of the earth, the old Babel syndrome. This is the conquering that's going to go on. So there isn't going to be um, a scenario where there's a military takeover of the world, but it'll be similar to what these but the COVID is doing where people will brush into the arms of the globalists for protection, for salvation, just as we're surrendering all of our rights and staying in our homes for protection. It will be similar to that. And it's this universal religion that will bring about the 10 king nation who doesn't actually receive their empires until anti until they partner with Antichrist towards the midpoint of the last seven years. But they'll be answering to universal religion that has the whole world cooperating and is being separated into those 10 empires, spheres of influence, trading blocks, just as the Rome of Club, the Club of Rome secret society that funnels into the uh, either the Rosicrucians at the top level or the Committee of 300, there's two different versions as to who they report to, have structured the world. So when we look at how this is going to come about, we're going to have wars, but it's not going to be through like a Hitler or Napoleon that's conquering the war. And just as when Antichrist comes to power, he'll take credit for winning the fake Armageddon. I think that's the Joel 1 and 2, Revelation 9 and Ezekiel 38 and 39 war. And we'll offer an age of peace, but he won't be the one. God actually stands up and fights for fights for Israel uh, in that war and protects them. So, But he's going to take credit for that so that he can be like Jesus at, at, at Armageddon. And so as we move forward, we're going to see more of the pandemics, more of the wars, more of everything that's going on, only in more intensity and greater intensity as it comes out. And with the sealed judgments, we have 25% of the world being slaughtered, 25% of the physical world being destroyed, and the trumpets will be 33%, and the wrath bowls will be 100%, except Jesus steps in to prevent that. That's the definition of birth pangs. And so that happens in the last seven years. And uh, as I say last seven years, I've been asked a lot lately, why do I, why do I say a last seven years? That comes out of you know, Daniel 9.25 through 9.27, where it says, 
uh, and desolations will continue to the end, and you take end back to Hebrew, and that's a word that means end of time, completion, and end time. So that's when the seven years are uh, ordained for. So it's a full seven years, just as Jesus talks about both halves of those seven years in, in Matthew 24 and Mark. Before the abomination, the first three and a half years, after the abomination, the next three and a half years. Um, fairly easy chronology on that. So there's a lot to be learned with what's being built on in terms of how this coup is going to happen. But this is still in the birth pang section. But it's going to be similar, and we're going to see similar types of things used to bring about the universal religion that brings upon world government, that leads to uh, the negotiation of the covenant, permits this world government, and then Antichrist coming to power three and a half years. So follow it, track it, but this isn't, we're not there yet. And we don't have a universal religion yet. So we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. And there's nothing to demonstrate that the sacrifice is going to be permitted by the Jewish people for the first three and a half years on a wing of the temple that's in place yet. So there's lots of things yet to develop. But what I do like about what uh, Blood Saves is telling us here is that if we understand the birth pangs happen over and over and over with the same type of catastrophes, with the same type of with the same type of uh, uh, but only stronger uh, pangs then the consequences that come out of those pangs will be stronger as well. So look for, for that as sort of a combination. But also look for those four pangs, the wars, the birth pangs, I mean not the birth pangs, the uh, pestilence, the earthquakes, and the famine to work together. And typically with the war, you're going to have pestilence and famine and or if you have a huge catastrophe like an earthquake that are is becoming really stronger you could get famine and pestilence coming out of that as well those disasters tend to seem to sort of work hand in hand look for that to continue excellent we appreciate the answer once again and the next question comes from Leighton Key and he asks are cryptids real and just for some clarification, he also said cryptids are monsters such as Wendigos or Skinwalkers. It's a it's a really good question. And there's a whole host of cryptoids or cryptids, and uh, those two are you know amongst that. You know, there's not significant evidence to suggest that uh, that they're that they're real, but. I also look at how much is out there in terms of a mythos, how much is out there in terms of a living mythos, in terms of people reporting things, seeing things, and through the generations, which makes that sort of mythos. And I look at that and say, if there's a consistency there, there's likely a lot more going on there than just being something made up. There's too much detail, there's too much history, there's too many happenings, and all of that suggests that all of these witnesses are lying. And I guess a good parallel example of that would be the alien phenomena. 
And there has to be something going on there. Um, we just don't know exactly what they are and what they're going to be doing. We have a pretty good idea what we think that they are from a Christian perspective. But until we actually see them, we don't know for sure. But I would certainly not rule them out whatsoever. Excellent. Well, we appreciate that answer as well. And it is 9 p.m. Eastern time. So why don't we go ahead and take a little water break and we'll play a couple trailers. Your partnership with Sacred Word Publishing goes further than the publishing of ancient manuscripts and weekly video content. there is a place where we can come together. And Digital Readers Club is our online ecclesia meant for those who've forsaken churchianity, but still want the closeness of a family to study with. Join us every Saturday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time to put together the puzzle pieces of truth scattered throughout the ancient scriptures. Your partnership with Sacred Word Publishing goes further than the publishing of ancient manuscripts and weekly video content. You also make a huge impact across the earth in orphanages in Myanmar, India, Uganda, and Kenya. Your support is crucial for the development of the Ecclesia of Real Truth Seekers. We thank you for joining us in hosting Secrets Revealed, Momentary Zen, the Digital Readers Club, Ask Me Anything series, and other shows that have helped lead so many to the truth of salvation. Become even more involved? Please visit patreon.com slash sacredwordpublishing where you can partake in exclusive, interactive, patron-only content and help us continue shining the light of love in this darkened world. Well, I do want to just give a quick shout out and a thank you to all of our patrons at patreon.com slash sacredwordpublishing. We really appreciate your support and your love. And in return for being a patron, we have five tiers of benefits. And I think the, the greatest benefit that you have in being a patron is just knowing what is taking place with your donation. We give updates uh, weekly updates and we also do a patron only AMA once per month and what's really cool about the weekly update is that we let you know exactly what is taking place at the Endeavor Freedom Orphanage Home in Lahe, Myanmar and you are directly supporting that and we we just can't tell you how much those children there really appreciate you and our brother Nalgong Jacob, who is actually uh, our boots on the ground in that land, actually interviewing the families, bringing in the children, making the renovations at the home. You know, he tells me all the time just what a blessing it is that you all are, you know, supporting them. And, you know, we, we just want to give another praise to the Most High for all of your support and uh, for enabling this channel to continue. and for enabling Sacred Word Publishing to continue focusing on the things that we do and 
furthering the the spread of truth and most especially in the ministry of sharing the truth of who our creator and our savior is so thank you very much and with that said we will return back to the ama gary you're still with us i am all right so we will move on to our next question that comes from deborah are there real reptilians living above and below the surface of the earth today well that's an interesting question for sure we don't know there's uh again it's like the cryptoid thing we hear a lot about it we don't get any real proof uh, we seem to be getting a lot more seemingly inside information about uh, reptilians and when we talk about reptilians typically i would look views reptilians as either being um, a being like a nakash uh, that uh, was saved somehow uh, or preferably in terms of my understanding would be like the nephilim um, so we there's they're finding more and more underground cities uh, we know that angels fallen angels had great technology there's no reason why they couldn't have taken some of their more favored beings after the seraphim fiery serpent angel look-alikes that they wouldn't have saved some off-planet or somehow within the planet whether they're sentient or not sentient so there's a possibility and that we also know that you know after jesus orates the fig tree generation to sort of overarch the signs of the end time he goes into not only will this generation not pass away the fig tree generation till everything that he had said has come true and has happened he then goes into the days of noah that it will be like the days of noah and again that's part of the overarching aspect that is helping define all of the events that he's describing beforehand both before the abomination and after the abomination and that noah lived 350 years after the flood and 600 years before the flood and in daniel 9 29 it actually says the days of noah and i think jesus being the word of God would use the perfect words and and not by coincidence use as in the days of Noah as it was talked about in Genesis 9:29 to have us with that overarching understanding that there were these beings that were both before and after the flood that they were created and that somehow some way we're going to have an impact of these beings in the end time so that's how I would sort of connect the dots on that Excellent. We appreciate the answer again. So now we are actually at live questions. I think that's the fastest we've ever gotten through our list. Yeah. We appreciate you and sharing your thorough answers. And uh, I'm excited to get started with the live question. So if you do have a live question in the chat, please feel free to write it and I will add it to the list. Uh, this first live question comes from MJM. Can the mark of the beast be implemented at any point in time prior to the start of the tribulation, or will it only occur at, say, the three-and-a-half-year midpoint? Yeah. So there's two tribulations. There's the first tribulation, and there's the great tribulation. 
And so, you know, the word affliction in Matthew 24 goes back to the same word as tribulation, thalipis. And they're actually interchanged as you go between Mark and Matthew in terms of the word affliction or tribulation, but it means the same thing. So the mark of the beast comes into play at the midpoint of the last seven years. So that is that hour of testing. And just as hour is used in Revelations, it also comes up later on in Revelations, in Revelation 17 and 18, when the hour of the ten kings are going to overthrow, give their power to Antichrist to overthrow Babylon. And just as the hour that Babylon is being destroyed, I think that the mark is that temptation in that hour that God is going to save us from or guard us from or keep us from, as the word says. And but going back to Greek, that's where you get, you know, keep us, keep as in guard, as in save us from. I think that is what we're going to be saved from. And the wrath bowls that are poured out afterwards, which is the wrath that we're going to be saved from. So I don't think the mark of the beast comes in until that point. And I also believe that that's its most advanced state where it affects the DNA to the level that we need to be concerned about. And it also comes with, I think, a swearing of loyalty to, to follow, to worship Antichrist and to Satan. And in the last three and a half years, not only is taking the mark, but also worshiping or worshiping Satan or Antichrist, it has the same punishment of taking you to the lake of fire for, for that crime against the laws of creation. So I would say we're going to have a coming together of this mark, but I don't think we have any worries until it comes at that midpoint. But I would expect that they're going to be making this available before on a volunteer basis and as new technologies come out. And then it's forced at a certain point of time. You either choose to take the mark, worship Antichrist, worship Satan, or the technology is going to be able to track you down and, and, and behead you for, for not doing that. But again, you'll be raised uh, to rule Jesus for in, in the millennium if that happens. So uh, I would expect a combination, I guess is what I'm saying. And I see that technology coming together. It's a combination of bringing together how do you vaccinate people with the bots, with the implants. And, you know, in Davos two years ago, as I recall, it was two years ago that they first started to talk intensely about delivering the implants with bots that could give you longer life, cure disease, um, through the medical association. So I would look for that technology that is quickly coming about along with pandemics and other catastrophes that we talked about earlier, cattle herding people into wanting to take this and uh, upgrading continually until you get to the mark of the beast. But my recommendation though is don't take any implants, period. Amen to that. Yes, I definitely agree. It, it just kind of sends chills down my spine every time I see that another company is chipping their employees. And oh man, I mean, it, it's just a very clear. It, 
Oh, it's it's and, total preparation it's, to get people yeah. used to the idea and witnesses say, oh, I took it, nothing's happened to me. Right. We're not in the end time. Like, you know, it's used to, in a very, very diabolical way to prepare people for the big deceptions yet coming. Yeah, and the Bible is just so clear. You know, it's put in your right hand or your forehead. I mean, what? Yeah. There's not that many things that it can be, you know. <laughs> All right, so I'll move on to the next question. It comes from Caleb. What do you think the great deception is going to be? Oh, Speaking boy. Of well, the great deception. There's a lot of great deceptions. Um, but it all ultimately leads up to one deception. So whether or not it's the alien, whether or not it's flat earth, global earth, whether or not um, it's the promises for godhood, these are all things designed to deceive rewriting of history. But the big deception in my mind is that people have to be convinced that, and this includes the elect, people who lead the church because even the elect are going to be deceived if that were possible and jesus tells us it is the big deception is that armageddon has come and antichrist usurps the role of messiah which brings down all of the barriers to take the mark of the beast that follows afterwards and that's why you have to have that counterfeit armageddon because nobody's going to be fooled, from a Christian perspective at least, that Messiah could be anybody except the one who comes back with the armies in white clothing in the skies at Armageddon. Right? So he's got to make that deception. So he needs an Armageddon war. He needs the ability to have this force from heaven coming down to fight. And in Revelation 12, you actually have all of the angels being cast down. That's at the midpoint of the last seven years. And in Revelation 9, you have all of these horrendous things following Abaddon, Apollyon out of the abyss. And in Revelation, as you get to the end of Revelation 9, you get the 200 million man war. And these Creatures that are part of that army in that 200 million man war match up very well to Joel 1 and 2, which is before Armageddon because Armageddon follows in 3 and 4. It's a separate war. And, and, and as I think I mentioned several times on the show, and maybe even again tonight, I think Ezekiel 38 and 39 is part of that same war. This is the 200 million man war that people will say will have to be Armageddon. And when Antichrist takes credit, for destroying uh, this army of Gog and Magog and the alliance thereof. And, of course, in Daniel, Antichrist sees an overwhelming army destroyed before him. He then takes his armies into, in Luke, uh, in the book of Luke, takes his armies into Jerusalem, surrounds Jerusalem, and sets up the abomination that causes desolation and crowns himself as king um, in the temple, as 2 Thessalonians talks about, which is Revelation 13, that talks about, you know, how he comes to power and will reign for 42 months after that. So I think all everything else is that before that leads up to the great deception of how people could believe Antichrist is Jesus. 
that's the great deception, I think. Yes, I definitely appreciate your feedback on that one. That is a question that I think everyone should be asking and preparing for. And uh, as you mentioned in Second Thessalonians 2, this is one that I like to keep in mind definitely is the Messiah is going to destroy the man of lawlessness with the brightness of his coming. You know, so that Antichrist figure, he's going to be sitting on, on the throne claiming to be God before our Creator actually returns. You know, the, the true Creator actually returns. Yeah. Well, and in, and in Daniel, he's actually able to bring down some of the starry hosts and trample on them. So he's actually going to be able mm -hmm. to demonstrate he's destroyed some of the angels that will be classified as the enemy. So, I mean, they're going to be, just as you have the secret societies and the polytheist religions, they already call themselves the children of light, and they like to wear white and stuff like that. And so they're going to cast the God of the Bible, Christians, Jewish people, as the evil ones. And they're going to present an image with this war in heaven that we see at the midpoint of the of the last seven years that I think is that, you know, Armageddon war towards the middle of point, like very close to it, that they have the ability to destroy the other angels, right? And that they have the technology to fight and they have an ability to have to live on their own in a separate realm. And all of that is part of that deception. But the big thing is, is why would people believe he is Jesus? And the reason is going to be is that, again, leading up to it, is they're going to destroy through false evidence the idea that Jesus was resurrected to heaven. They're just going to de-deify him to prophet status, that he was taken down from the cross before he died, so that you can still have a resemblance of the Christian religion within the universal religion. And he is going to say, I am the actual Messiah, and he's going to have a false resurrection that you know he gets from his fatal head wound that is also part of that deception. So I think it all leads up to that great deception, but that's just my opinion. And the thing is, there's just so much deception going on, it's hard to sort of distinguish what would be the greatest deception. And I still think all those other things come together to deceive everybody into the great deception that... Antichrist will call himself the Son of God. Absolutely. Well, we appreciate the thoroughness of your answer, and uh, we, we appreciate everyone that's joining us for really your heart of wanting to know, and uh, I pray that we can all learn together and really be sounding the trumpets, because definitely the, the, the time's near, for sure. So we'll kind of switch gears with this next question that comes from Facts Not Fiction. Also, I just wanted to shout out to everyone in the chat. Awesome questions. Uh, people are asking some great questions, and we have about 10 more on the list. So <laughs> if you do have any more questions, feel free to, to ask them, and we'll put them on the list. But if we don't get to them tonight, we'll put them on the list for our next episode in June. So this question comes from Facts Not Fiction. Who were the Aryans, and did they originate during Atlantis or later with Cain, or even later with the post-flood Raphaim? Uh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Again, very big question and important question. The Aryan understanding or mythos or out of secular history sort of all comes together 
uh, as being the survivors who come up out of the abyss or Tartarus who escape from the prison they were sent into for rebelling before the flood, they escape after the flood. And so the Aryans are the ones who are going to uh, be the epicenter for a lot of other peoples that um, people may not have thought about it in this manner. And that would be one, the Scythians, uh, which are closely related to, uh, you know, the, the Tartarus uh, uh, Empire that is, uh, you know, talked about a lot um, in the last few years, and I think for good reason. Um, they are the same as the Scythians who are the Tuatha de Danan. And in that realm, you have two different branches. You have the blonde-haired, blue-eyed, pale white-skinned ones that went up the Danube into the north and into Russia and into Germany and into um, Norway, into Sweden. And then you have the red-haired, pale-skinned, hazel or green-eyed ones that migrated uh, over to Ireland and to England and Scotland for the most part and likely were the same ones after the flood that you know, migrated over to, to North America because so many of them have, have the red, red hair. These are also the Aryans that settle into the Indus Valley and are bringing the religion from Babel with them. So there's an interaction at Babel, and I'm going to get to that in a second. And so they create the Vedic religions and peoples in the Indus Valley. And this is the religion that is very much related to Zoroastrianism. They have the same names of gods, which I, you know, I won't go into a long litany on that, but understand it's the same religion and the names are so identical. And this is the religion that Mithraism comes out of, which was the religion of Rome at the time of Christianity, um, breaking into the Roman Empire, in which is you see a lot of Mithraism that was sort of homogenized into Christianity along with the Egyptian religion to make the state religion for Constantine. And so this is also the Mary Anu that would have migrated back into the Sumerian region, um, just as they're also known as the tribe of, Dana, of Danu and a connection to the Tuatha de Danan. All the names have this etymology that sort of intersect and all come from the same epicenter after the flood and as being these giants from around the Mediterranean area that survive into the post-Diluvian world. This is the polytheist and secular versions of the giants. And the Marianu are going to marry into the Nimrod bloodlines after Babel. And they're going to intermarry with uh, other Raphaim in the Middle East after the flood as well. So they're going to be part of the uh, scioning of bloodlines to create the Mitanni dynasty. They're going to marry in with the Amalekim and the Horim. And they're also even going to marry into the Egyptian bloodline, which is a partnership of Nimrod's descendants taking over the Pharaoh dynasties and that additional Rephaim and these Marianu. 
how I would bring all of that together is this, is that we get this account coming out of polytheism, but I think these are Raphaim. I think these are the Raphaim that are created after the flood. I'm open to the fact that giants survived the flood because we get so many accounts in polytheism, but my favorite position is, is that the Raphaim are the ones who uh, are recreated after the flood and they're somehow distinct from the Nephilim before the flood. So that should give you a pretty good idea who the Aryans are, and I'll put the final links in there right now. When we look at the Nazi regime of World War II, and the Arianism that they overlay on Theosophy, which is a religion that was created by the Gnostics and the Rosicrucians, they take that a little bit more rogue, if that were possible, and apparently it was, and they called it Ariosophy, because they overlaid Arian belief system that comes from Thule with Grail mythos, which is the bloodlines of the, of the Rephaim and the Nephilim and the polytheist system, along with real ideology of something in the blood that goes back to fallen angels and Nephilim that they're, they're trying to recreate to create this greater race. This all comes together in the Nazi regime. And they look at this Arianism coming from Thule. Thule is either a parallel Atlantis because it has all the same sort of trappings and descriptions as it comes out of prehistory and the same blonde hair, blue-eyed descriptions that the Atlanteans had. Again, white-skinned, either blue hair or blue hair, blue eyes, blonde hair, or red hair and hazel eyes for the Mediterranean. It's just as the Kishamaya take survivors, as they say, coming out of an island continent that um, started their civilization, and just as the White Snake Clan are described the same way from the Hopi and other native Aboriginal First Nations in North America, we have this sort of common uh, legacy coming out of polytheism about these giants that uh, were connected to the Atlantean mythology. And in some thoughts, Thule, which was also one of the secret societies uh, that were part of the partnership to create the Nazi regime and the Nazi party, like the Genin Orden, Germanin Orden Order, and the New Temple Order, and several other ones coming together. But Thule is 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 also part of sort of the Norse mythology and part of the Asgard island and and civilization that might have been part of the greater part of civilizations I mentioned earlier in the show. So you have all of that sort of coming together with the Nazis that they believe that they were the giants of old and they're going to backwards engineer or develop through interbreeding going forward the new man, which is the new Nephilim concept, which is everything that, you know, the transhumanism and Anything that's going to try and create a superhuman is the same Nephilim concept that is trying to be recreated. So when we talk about Aryans, it has this, this, this uh, ability to reach into a thousand different directions, but I think it goes back to being the Raphaim that show up after the flood, as opposed to the Atlanteans that escape from Tartarus, as uh, polytheism would have us believe. 
Excellent. Thank you very much for that answer. Our next question comes from Anonymous. With Satan being kicked out of heaven, do you believe he has a seat or a throne where he dwells here on earth somewhere? Yeah, I think so. He wants to raise his throne up to be like God. And he is the God of this earth. He is the God, um, you know, the prince of this world. So I think he does have a throne, and I think he counterfeits everything. So I think with him and his sort of... I guess not advisory gods, but uh, he will have his own Ophanium, he will have his own cherubim, he'll have his own seraphim that surround his throne on earth. Now, whether or not that's still invisible or it's actually a physical place on earth, we don't know that. But it could be in another dimension, right? It could be, you know, set up uh, where it's in the earth, we just can't see it. Uh, because it's in, it's on another wavelength. Whatever, wherever, however it is, I guess the question was, do do I think he has a throne on Earth? Yes, he does, and that's where he rules from. Yes, I'm reminded of Revelation when it talks about the faithful martyr Antipas that was uh, killed, where Satan's throne is on the Earth, and. Uh, I think it was in Pergamon, Turkey is where that was located. Are you familiar with that? Yes. Yep. Yep. That is the seat of Satan. And uh, it is, uh, you know, the throne of Zeus. And it's right, the same right. throne that was discovered in the 1860s and then taken back to Germany as they were trying to set up Satan's throne on earth in Germany in the false millennium that yes. Hitler was trying to recreate. Yes, I think that's another classic example that he actually has a throne on earth, although that would be maybe a representation of humans, or it was humans that had a place for Satan to come sit with them. I mean, we don't know, um, we don't know how often Satan and or his uh, rebellious ones in the different pantheons around the world actually, you know, physically communicated with, with those civilizations before and after the flood. So we, we, but I do think he had his own thrones, and there was representations, as we're clearly told, as you mentioned in the Bible, um, where his throne is. Definitely. As you mentioned, the, the temple of Zeus, the throne of Zeus, uh, that was taken to Germany. That's a very interesting study, and you can actually still visit and see that actual temple. It's it's at the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. Yeah. Joy and I actually went there, but it wasn't available for display for mm. some reason, but they've got some very interesting things there, including the Ishtar Gate that was part of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's Yep. giant temple so yep. history is awesome yep. just studying is so fun i wouldn't be surprised if that pergamon throne is taken to the temple for the crowning of antichrist yeah it's definitely uh got quite a story on how many times it's been shipped back and forth to different places uh, we'll move on to the next question that comes from joel in the book of Revelation, when Yeshua is addressing the churches, he refers to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which he hates. What was that doctrine? 
Yeah, that's a that's a good question, and testing my memory on that. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna pass on that because uh, all of the details as to uh, all of the doctrines that they participated in, I just don't have quite at the fingertips of my memory right now. So, um, no yeah, worries no. at all. Yeah, I don't I don't want I don't want to I don't want to misquote or misspeak. So I'll Absolutely. pass on that one. Right, maybe we'll add that one to the list for next month. And, sure. Uh, but we appreciate your modesty, and that's a mark of a scholar is being able to, you know, pass on a on a question and revisit it at a later time. So the next question comes from Lewis. In the time of Noah's flood, did Satan attempt to warn his seed about the flood, have his people build their own ark, or did he realize that any attempt to stop it would be futile? Again, good question and good points within the question. And uh, I think, you know, when we get polytheist versions of giants surviving the flood, you get the epic of Gilgamesh, which would be the most famous one. And in that account, the gods do go to Upnapishtim and have him and his Nephilim family, because they're all two-thirds God and one-third human, to create this ark. The details are different, and it's like seven days before the flood, as, as my memory recalls. And so you get that as a common story, just as you get um, Deucalion and his wife Pyrrha in the Greek story uh, being warned about the flood. And in other accounts around the world, you have all sorts of accounts of them being warned and they're going up a mountain to build logs, all sorts of different stories that there's, you know, there's probably something to that mythos or it's a very common standard dogma, just a polytheism to, to try and show how giants show up after the flood. But there are giant survival stories all over the world, just as there are human ones. And it's and uh, maybe even more common that there's more giant survival stories in all the different cultures. So I don't think we can readily dis dismiss it that it may not have happened. Whether or not they actually survived the flood is a whole different story. Uh, again, I go for second incursion as my favorite position, but because we don't have what I would call a smoking gun verse, and I know a lot of people like to say, well, that's not right because there is. Um, well, it's just not clear enough anywhere that we have a verse like it has in before the flood in Genesis 6, 4, where they actually went at that time and recreated, you know, created giants. We don't get that type of verse happening after the flood. We do get that they went to, um, human females again, but we don't, we're not told whether that's before or after the flood. So it's not quite clear enough for me, but I make a very good case in a document for second incursion at Sodom uh, after the flood, but we don't get that sort of smoking gun verse. But what is common in, in again, even in the Gnostic gospels, you get um, the gods going to uh, uh, their, 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 their people, and these, I think, are the uh, the Sethites, the from Amaka Seth, that you know are being warned about the flood. So, 
I don't want to dismiss it completely. So I think it's highly possible. Now, did they think it was futile? No, I don't think they, they look at things in that sort of manner. You have to understand that the fallen angels, they do understand God intimately, even though they rebelled. I mean, they were around God. They knew he, they created them, but they still rebelled. And if they thought rebelling was totally futile, they wouldn't have rebelled. So again, I think you would see this still happening at the time of the flood. They're the ones who are bringing down humankind so that we're not going to be raised to uh, angelic-like status and even judge those fallen angels in the future time. But they had no idea that God was going to close the door on them with the resurrection because had they realized that Jesus was going to be resurrected, they wouldn't have crucified him, as Corinthians talks about. And so up until that point, and that's where I think Jesus goes to the impassioned ones in the abyss and tells them, hey, you're going to the lake of fire, as Matthew talks about. Your rebellion is officially over. Up to that point, and this happens before Jesus rises on the Sunday, when he's talking to them while he's still in the ground, as First Peter talks about, up to that point, I think they still felt they could win their own realm no matter what they did. They had already rebelled from God. They weren't sent to the lake of fire at this point in time. They were trying to destroy humans so that they wouldn't be raised to be like angels, but also to justify their own rebellion so that they could have a realm to be like God's realm, to have Satan as their leader, to be like God and to rule over that realm. And I think that's what they were looking for all of the time. Not that they could ever beat God, but that they're always trying to make a case to live away from God because they didn't want to follow the rules anymore. So they weren't looking at it as futility if they were warning it. They were looking at it in the same manner as the rebellion and that there wasn't going to be that ultimate punishment because they wanted to continue to have giants lead humankind astray after the flood, which was the whole goal. So what happens? Giants show up after the flood. So does that mean some survived? Or does that mean that some also after the flood went to human females and created the Raphaim and those ones would have gone to the abyss as well for the same violation after the flood? We don't know. We don't have that smoking gun. But what versus as what I've talked about, we just have... They're before the flood, they're after the flood. So I think they probably did do that. Whether or not they were successful, I can't 100% say. It's just, there's, I, I leave that door open on that. Thank you very much for that answer. Our next question is also very interesting. It comes from an anonymous source again. Does New Jerusalem come to earth before or after the millennial reign? After, uh, in Revelation 21. So after the millennial reign, after the second Gog War, after Satan is sent to the lake of fire, and after the judgment, then there's a new heavens and a new earth. And what's interesting is that after... After you have uh, 
Satan being sent to the lake of fire, then you have the resurrection of those who are going to be suffering the second death or not happening. And so at that point in time, all who are have won their sort of immortality badge, if I can put it that way, they're crowned to be able to go to uh, the the next world, uh, to be like angels in that new world, then we get a new heavens and a new earth. But, you know, when I look at, I think it's in Isaiah chapter 65, when we get this new heavens and this new earth, it's going to be like a new golden age in a physical world. And it talks at that point in time, after the creation of the new heavens and the new earth, that people will live to be a very old age, just as they did before the flood. And that if you only lived to be 100, you would be a cursed. And I start to wonder when I hear that, is the new heavens and the new earth, not only are we going to have, you know, God and, and, and Jesus on earth with us in that new age, but I wonder whether or not there's going to be this ongoing creation of beings that will also have to choose God and his ways to increase the numbers of the immortals, just as what we've had to do, as opposed to what the angels didn't have to go through. They were already created immortal. They Their choice was only to stay uh, loyal to God or not. Excellent. Thank you for that information. Next question is, where are we in relation to the seven-year tribulation? Do you think we will live to see Jesus' return? Probably depends on how old you are. <laughs> so without uh, making light of the question, it's a good question. I think we're in the fig tree generation. And I think the fig tree generation begins in 1967 as opposed to 1947 um, with the declaration of the nation state of Israel. I think it starts in 1967 with the taking of Jerusalem. All prophecy, all end-time prophecy seems to center around Jerusalem. So to have the southern kingdom of Judah, the remnant with, that contains the remnant of the southern kingdom of Judah within those peoples, whatever your thoughts are on Jewish people, there is a remnant God will fight for in the end time. And they are part of visible, what we see is visible Judaism today, as well as the visible ones around the world. So whatever percentage are the true Jewish people in there, God's going to fight for them in the end day. That people, the Jewish people that we know today, uh, have control of Jerusalem that all prophecy seems to center around for the end time. And so I think that starts off the fig tree generation. So the next question gets to be is, how long is a generation? And in Psalms 90, we're told uh, a generation is, a 70, is, is 70 years. And in Genesis 6-3, we're told that life is reduced to 120 years because of the crimes of the Nephilim and that they weren't going to have demigods on earth. And it was designed to stop the Nephilim. And I have a great document on this that walks everybody through the basis for my premise on this, if you want to get a hold of me, uh, from living to great ages and being physical gods on earth. But that then also affected the descendants of Noah 
um, thereafter as well. And that's why you see the lifespans come down to, you know, 120 and less for the most part um, uh, after a few generations. So when we look at a generation, if it's 70 years, then, you know, that puts us in a window, whether or not it's 1947 or 1967 of 2017 to 2037. If it goes to the full seven years, so if it's 120 years, well, that's going to take us, you know, on the outside to, you know, like uh, almost 2090. So uh, maybe not all of us will be living, but I think it's it's I think it's closer to the 70 years than the 120 years. And we know the days are probably going to be shortened anyways, however much. Um, so I think there's a good chance that we're in the birth pangs right now. We're not in the last seven years, and things are still being assembled, but I think as the birth pangs start to intensify, the catastrophes will begin to mount, and then we'll see the false prophets come out with the prophecies of doom to convert the world. And all of this could happen once those major catastrophes start to hit, probably working together, and probably as either produced or created or you know deduced by these false prophets coming out because um, they're going to in some um, lines of thought in some areas where people think that the universal religion is coming from like Medjugorje which is the Mary apparition cult those children six of them were initiated in the 90s to come out at a certain period of time with 10 prophecies of disaster to convert to the true religion, as they'll call it, or be destroyed from the face of the earth, they're going to scare people into this religion. So you get these disasters and calamities happening together, look for the false prophets, and then also look for them to manipulate what they mean by rise. And I would wouldn't surprise me if these prophets are going to be people who kind of come back from the dead or come back from some sort of great suffering to be these false prophets because they'll use that word rise that's used in, in Matthew and Mark. And out of context, although it can mean rise from the dead, I think they're going to use it in connection with that, even though Generally, when the word arise, arise, it has in the context of a resurrection from the dead, something about the dead in there. We don't get that in Matthew, but I think they'll manipulate the, the wording on that. I think there's a relationship in there we need to, to, to watch out for that these false prophets will have some sort of special mystical pedigree or experience that will cause people to listen and then with their prophecies will bring this stuff up. Uh, about and cause the time to, to sort of quicken so that all of the pieces will come together in a very, very fast way. Maybe even to the point where you could see it coming within five years or maybe even three years of the last seven years. Because when I look at you know, the time of, of, of the hour of testing where it's, you know, you're going to be tested for 10 days, I wonder whether or not day in that application is a prophetic year as it can be, as in weeks of years. And if that's the case, that means you've got a tribulation at the end for three and a half years, Then the, and before that is the first tribulation of three and a half years. For seven years, would you have that time of, you know, hour of, of tribulation for another three years before that? 
as Babylon is actually rising in power and you have these false prophets. So I'd be very open to that sort of scenario as I start to see this come together. So I think we're going to see, uh, to answer the question, I think we're going to see in our lifetime and in most of our lifetimes, all of this come together and into the end time. And I do believe we're in the fig tree generation. Amen to that. Thank you. Okay, our next question is, does Gary think the Pope has a special bloodline? That's, a, that's an excellent question. I have not really researched his bloodline. I do know he comes, you know, from, you know, Italy, his family does. Uh, typically, you know, if you're going to be a uh, pope, you're typically going to have a bloodline. You're going to have some sort of nobility. There's a name that is equated with um, sort of the, uh, uh, I would say, the upper family class of the pope. So they call the black nobility that is supported by the bloodline black nobility as they invaded uh, the religious organizations with their um, bloodlines to get control of the church with, with the popes. And you also have him as being a Jesuit, and now he's, you know, he's leading both. And again, that suggests that there would be this, this bloodline as well. So uh, I think there's a good, there's a, there's a, a significant likelihood that he comes from some sort of ennobled bloodlines, um, but I don't believe that it is of such a nature that it makes him of anything for the end time, other than maybe being the last pope, um, as you know, Nostradamus predicted, the black pope, um, which is the leader of the Jesuits, um, is what the black pope is, as opposed to the skin color. And certainly in the prophecies of Malachi, uh, numeric, numerically he would be the last pope. So that would be the anti-pope, the one who leads the church away and into apostrophe for the false prophets and the false prophet so that it can then leap and gobble up all the other religions of the world under uh, this revised, recreated religion with a de-deified Jesus that we talked about earlier and a reposition of Jesus to prophet status like a Confucius and uh, Mohammed and um, Zoroaster and Hermes and Confucius and all these other ones that have been sent to help people along the way is how they'll reclassify so that you can still have Christians um, in and amongst uh, this universal religion which will be an umbrella religion which brings all of the religions home and also look for them to uh, say that Moses actually brought back the polytheist religion from Heliopolis um, and that at the time of the monarchy, somewhere in that range, monotheism took over and it took the polytheist religion rogue. And that's why the Essenes have the true religion, because they take the religion back to Heliopolis. And then that cuts off all of sort of the three one god religions, the three monotheist religions of Judaism, uh, Christianity and Islam at the Moses level as their creation as being... Um, a 
corruption of the original polytheist religion of Babel and before the flood. And again, that's going to be all part of how they sort of bring this thing together. Well, thank you for that. We have 10 minutes left in the show, so maybe time for one or two more questions. I want to give you time at the end of the show to make sure that we share where people can contact you and purchase your book as well. So this question is, are you aware or do you subscribe to the idea of cities of refuge, also known as pockets of mercy? Well, they certainly had it in ancient Israel. Um, so I, I ascribe to that policy um, that if you made it to a city of refuge, whether or not you killed somebody or not, I mean, you were protected as long as you lived in there. Um, I'm not sure what the connection is in terms of outside that. Uh, I think so maybe, the, the question is relating to there is a new concept that there's going to be like the land of Goshen where the Israelites were kept during the plagues on Israel or on Egypt, and that land was like a city of refuge because they didn't actually suffer from the plagues. Mm. And people were talking about what could a possible Goshen be uh, in this end times. Well, um, we do know that the people who flee from Judea after the abomination are going to be protected in the wilderness for three and a half years. Um, so there is that kind of protection. You also have, even though they're going to be attacked by Satan spewing the river, God's still going to protect them for three and a half years in the wilderness. Doesn't mean they're going to not have some people get killed as they flee. You're going to have second exodus being set up, but people are going to be persecuted and imprisoned until second exodus happens, which is the lost tribes of Israel awakening, who will be led in Exodus by Jesus and likely the seven shepherds out of Micah, um, back to meet up with uh, the people of visible Judah in the wilderness. So awakened Israel, visible Judah around the world, there'll be that second Exodus and they'll be protected. Um, but that doesn't appear to be a city of refuge because they'll be going to the same uh, location as um, the people of Judea who flee, who flee to the to the to the mountains. So, um, what we do know is that uh, we will suffer tribulation, and we're told that all people in Christianity are going to suffer tribulation. And I think we're going to have tribulation in the end time. Um, so, do I think there's going to be pockets like that for us? Uh, Geez, I don't think so. I don't think so. But you know, I wouldn't. You know, I wouldn't totally rule it out. But we don't get prophetic scripture for that, which is why I, I, I'm highly doubtful on it. At least scripture that I'm aware of. Okay, thank you for that. So maybe time for one more question, and this comes from Electric Pyramid. Why did Moses, when receiving the Ten Commandments, get horns? I wasn't aware that he did receive horns. <laughs> um, Mary says, King James Version says shown, but in the ancient text it says he got horns. Um, are you familiar with any ancient text that says that? No, 
No, I'd like to see that text, and I'll have to take. Uh, uh, I'd like to know the the verse that it's talking about because I'd like to be able to go back and do some research on it and to take it back to Hebrew. And I'd like to know what the other source is. Definitely. All right. Well, this is our last question, and it comes from the tree mistress. Any information about the Pleiadians? Are they a form of angels or demons or lost spirits? Well, they, they have uh, several levels of the mythos from being aliens um, to being uh, gods or angels. They also have a tradition as being the stars that caused the flood, um, that hit the oceans, that started the whole flood catastrophes. Um, so I'm not sure exactly what the Pleiades would show up to be in the end time. I don't, I don't see any prophecy for the Pleiades playing out in the end time. But what I do know is, is there's nothing new under the sun. So I'm looking for maybe a reference to like stars falling to the earth and some of the catastrophes that we have in the end time. And these stars from the Pleiades tend to be thought of um, in the polytheist accounts, more like a meteor or an asteroid. I would maybe be looking for that from a prophetic perspective. And or these are the aliens that are going to be um, presented to us that are the ones that you know we're going to be introduced to as part of the deception. Those, those would be the ways where I would see it coming about. But um, we don't get scripture on that. But understand Pleiades was a significant part of polytheism as as they recount uh, prehistory. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us again for this awesome episode of Ask Me Anything with author and researcher Gary Wayne. Gary, we appreciate you so much for joining us, and the love from everyone in the chat is very apparent as well. We just want to give you one more chance to let us know how can we get in touch with you and where can we purchase your book, The Genesis 6 Conspiracy. Best place to go is to the Genesis6Conspiracy.com. That's with the number 6Conspiracy.com. And on there, you can go to the Buy Now section to buy my book, get a signed copy, go over to the Kindle version, buy that from Amazon, or go to Amazon.com or to BarnesandNoble.com and, and buy it off there. That's the fastest, easiest way. Or you could have it uh, brought into your local bookstore if you wanted to support them. They can get it through Bookmasters who distributes to all of the retailers uh, for my book. And... You can also get a hold of me through the website. There's an email on there. So if you want any of the documents that I mentioned earlier uh, in the show, get a hold of me and I'll send those to you or ask me a question or send me information on some of the things I was stumped on tonight that I would gladly look into. Get a hold of me through that or through Messenger on Facebook under Gary Wayne or post on my timeline. It's an open timeline and or Twitter at Gary Wayne 63 at Gary Wayne 63. Excellent. All right. Well, we appreciate it. And lastly, would you mind closing us out in a quick prayer? Sure. Father in heaven, we thank you for permitting us to commune. We are so specially pleased to be able to still be able to get together and that your will has permitted this in this age of censorship and political correctness and not permitting people to 
communicate with the same level of pre free speech. We we know this is part of the birth pangs that are coming, but we thank you so much to give us avenues where Christians can communicate and exchange ideas and to understand where we are and what's going to happen and to create a stronger faith for what is coming and a stronger faith in the belief in Jesus and in the Holy Spirit and in yourself. And we, and we thank you for permitting that. And we also pray that the things that we learn, the things that we start to dig into from communicating like this, that we can somehow relay that to other people and plant other seeds that will bring people stronger in the faith or back to the faith so that they too can be saved. And we just thank you for the people who come and take time to participate in these type of sessions that we're doing with the AMA. And because we know people have lots of other things that they can do with their time. And so they're showing their eagerness and they want to do more and do be stronger in the faith. So we ask you to bless the people and bless our, any, everybody and including myself to communicate as clearly as we can and in the spirit so that we can persuade others. And we pray these things in the name of our Savior, the word Jesus, who sits at your right hand side and testifies to you for us and all of the saints. And we also pray in the name of the Holy Spirit, in your great and holy name. Amen. Thank you very much, everyone, for joining us. Thank you, Gary, for giving us a brain dump for two hours. We have so much information <laughs> now to, to review, and we just appreciate you answering everybody's questions. Uh, if you are joining us and you didn't get your question answered, please email me at sacredwordpublishingllc at gmail.com, and we can get your question on the list for next month's AMA. We'll be live again on the first Monday of next month at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for episode 14 of AMAs with author and researcher Gary Wayne. We appreciate you all. God bless. Bye. Everyday questions arise. Are the stories in the Bible true? What if I told you that there are hundreds of confirming witnesses? Which give intricate detail to the stories in the Bible. Have you ever found yourself deep in the rabbit hole with questions that no one seemed to have the answers to? Join us the first Monday of every month at 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Endeavor Freedom YouTube channel for our Ask Me Anything series with author and researcher Gary Wayne as he sheds light on the mysteries which have us all searching together.